Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish up Edward Said's Orientalism with the final chapter titled Orientalism Now. If you're just jumping into this, just know this is part three of three, so go and check out parts one and two first. If you happen to have found this uh, to be your first foray into this channel or this podcast, then you can go and find 200 more, some episodes, wherever you found this. You can find this on YouTube if you found this in podcast form or sometimes release videos. Or if you found this in podcast form, you can just find the audio alone on pretty much any YouTube platform. Any YouTube platform. Any podcast platform. Now, if you want to help me out, even if you're new or you've been here for a while, you can do that by liking, sharing, subscribing. If you're listening to this in podcast platform that allows you to leave reviews, please do. I read them all. I can't respond to them, but I love to read them in five stars if you have that option. You can also help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure to do that. And you can follow me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. Links for all of these things in the description. So yeah, without further ado, let's conclude Edward Said's Orientalism. Now, despite the criticisms I've raised about this text, I think that it's undoubtedly important. And I think that everyone should at least have a core understanding or an understanding of the core themes and arguments of this text, because they're extremely important. So this chapter, chapter 3, Orientalism Now, begins with a consideration of the difference between latent and manifest Orientalism. Now this distinction isn't hugely important in the text here. What is important to grasp is that over the course of the previous two chapters, he presented a number of different figures that belong to the school or to many different schools of Orientalism. Now, there were differences between all of them, and he went through many of these differences, and they were what he called manifest differences, the kind of outward-facing approach that these thinkers took, or these uh, academics took, to understand the Orient, or politicians, and so on. Now, what remained the same among all of them was what he calls latent Orientalism, and latent or orientalism, or what binds all of these different approaches together, has some necessary qualities. And they are that the West is best, that people, uh, Arabic-speaking people, are somehow inferior to people who speak Indo-European languages. That the East, that the Near Orient, is a place that has to be excavated and understood because it is uh, prima facie, or uh, at the at the beginning, or as it appears, it's not those aren't all synonyms. But anyways, as it appears, it appears to be a, a very mysterious, exotic, fantastical place, and it needs to be made clear. It needs to be put under the spectral light of scientific observation, or religious observation, or religious indoctrination, and so on. So these are some of the manifest or the latent qualities that bind otherwise disparate-seeming or different-seeming approaches to Orientalism. And these qualities do not reflect, in his words, the real Orient. And this is obviously some slippery territory, because in saying that, he is implying that there is this real thing called the Orient out there, and that perhaps with enough academic rigor, it can be unearthed. Now, at the end of this chapter, just to clarify this point because it would seem like a contradiction given everything he said about 
the creation of the Orient and they're not existing in Orient, he clarifies at the end that there is no real Orient. But that doesn't, it's not totally satisfactory for me that he would include, and this is on page 203 in my edition, he would include um, the qualification that these latent characteristics or these approaches to Orientalism or these Orientalists do not necessarily refer to the real Orient as though there was this real Orient. But in any case, it's there. Now he attributes this broad field of Orientalism across all of its manifest differences to a political doctrine willed over the Orient. How the idea was that there would be a kind of political imperative to drive the study of the Orient. And in his words, it was because the Orient was weaker than the West, which elided the Orient's difference with its weakness. And this is a, another mysterious quotation in that he's submitting to an Orientalist theme that the East is somehow weaker than the West. And that might, you know, certainly might be true at the time in terms of like military might, maybe, I'm, I don't know, but it reveals the extent to which Said's understanding of Orientalism is filtered through some preconceived notions about what can constitute power, what can constitute um, strength, and what can constitute weakness. To people living in the Orient, they might have observed themselves to be much stronger than people in the West. And when I say the Orient, I'm referring to this constructed idea of the Orient. So what we can, I guess, surmise from this passage is that Said is saying that the Orient is weaker according to Orientalists. Now, that's not totally clear in the text, but we're, we're extending an olive branch to Said here. But then just above this passage, he includes a section or includes a, a passage that reads, Human societies at least the more advanced cultures, have rarely offered the individual anything but imperialism, racism, and ethnocentrism for dealing with quote-unquote other cultures. Now here, there's a submission to this notion of progress, there being such a thing as more advanced cultures, and we must interrogate. How do we actually interpret or how do we actually calculate which cultures are more advanced? Are they just more advanced from the perspective of European ideals? In which case, then yes, Europe, the West, is best uh, because they're just going to set the standards for what can be considered the best or the most advanced. If we are looking at it from the perspective of somebody living in Iraq, their conception of progress or advancement might be radically different. So we have to interrogate these terms and just their, their use willy-nilly in the text as though we are meant to know exactly what they mean. And just one more thing on this. He says that we can ascertain Western superiority on the global, in a global context, because within the Orient, there was no such thing as Occidentalism. There was no field of study of the West, which is, which is a very narrow way to understand progress, as though progress can only be measured by one culture or many cultures that have been clumped into one organizing principle, that is the Orient, not having or not pursuing the academic study of the quote-unquote other. 
as though that is the only way to exert power. Of course, this completely obviates the consideration of religious power, of political power, of economic power, and so on. But these types of distinctions were not reserved between or to be inputted upon or uh, put up against the East. So the, it wasn't as though the West was just a purely homogenous mass that was oppressing the East. He also identifies that within Europe, there were tensions between Britain and France, where the British believed themselves to be superior to the French in many ways because of their varying relationships to this thing called the Orient. So he quotes Lord Cromer again from the previous chapters, where he shows that the English viewed themselves as more advanced than the French, and this is why Orientals, like Egyptians specifically, and if you can recount that Napoleon had a fascination with Egypt, uh, that Egyptians were drawn to the French. So the English thus saw that the alliances that were brewing between Egypt and France was a result of the fact that France was less developed than England, so they could therefore have an affiliation with other countries that England believed to be inferior, like Egypt. Yet despite this difference, despite this infighting within the West, they both maintained a latent Orientalism, which is the idea that Western Europe is superior to Eastern Europe, or to Western Asia. Depends what kind of Orientalism we are considering here. Uh, and they are incredibly different, British and French Orientalism. Uh, and it's, it's, it's easy to fall prey to the idea that it itself, Orientalism, is just a homogenous mass. Now, in the 20th century, Orientalism began to grow. And this is something we've, he's already talked about many different times in fleeting instances. But here he says it once again that in the 20th century, Orientalism began to grow in Western Europe primarily through two avenues. The first one was academic. So there were academic, the, the academic study of the Middle East with Orientalism or with Arabic studies, Middle Eastern studies departments popping up and so on. Now the second avenue or the second reason for the growth of Orientalism in the 20th century is a little bit more opaque where he writes that there was essentially also a turn or a move by academics and other people studying the Orient to put their knowledge into practice for policy, which is again something we've already discussed. So it was about communicating their knowledge of the Orient through experience if, if they were had traveled there uh, or through study and to communicate that to the European people. And there was growing interest among the public in the Orient. And there were authors that contributed to this, figures like Agatha Christie, who you know, came a little later. Or actually, I think I think she was born in the late 19th century. So yeah, her and her texts, you know, think of Murder in the Orient Express and so on. Or maybe texts like um, the Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which conveys, or at the beginning of the, the book, there's this very gloomy presentation of Romanian people and culture. And, and landscape and territory uh, that I think can easily fit within this Orientalist tradition. My point being that the study of the Orient was starting to become 
a fascination among the European public at large. Now, so far in all this, we haven't really discussed race. That is, we haven't really discussed whiteness all that much. And here he considers it in a little bit of detail, where he says that whiteness and Orientalism kind of go hand in hand. And so are the mechanisms that create whiteness or create Orientalism, where whiteness emerged from two specific developments. So number one, there was the culturally sanctioned habit of deploying large generalizations. And in his words, this allowed for a clear line of separation between us and them. And if you can do that along racial lines, it's going to be really easy to start to attach other negative connotations to people if you can clump them together, not, not in terms of culture, which can be difficult because, you know, people in Iraq are going to be different from people in Afghanistan or people in Romania, different from people in Turkey, uh, you know, all these different cultures that are going to, and even within these countries, people are going to be different. But if you can associate them all in accordance with their race, then you're going to have a very easy or easier time in putting forward negative imagery about them, negative ideas about them that can help uh, further control them. Now, the second reason for an emerging idea about whiteness was the emergence of the idea of the white man being imbued with the status of superiority. So these two operations went hand in hand to create a difference between whiteness and other races and the uh, and imbuing whiteness with a superior status, they went hand in hand to really forward the projects of Orientalism. And the way that race was used to clump groups of people together under vast generalizations, it was used in such a way as to allow little variation in the study of these people and their cultures and languages, because they could just be assumed out of hand what they were going to be like could be assumed how they were going to act what their qualities were and so on and so anyone else that would go to study them would likely be influenced by all of this previous knowledge quote-unquote knowledge that was accrued about them and then they anything that they observed about those people would be filtered through that knowledge that they had and so there was an effort of solidification to solidify the other make them subject to their race and freeze them in time in accordance with their race. And he calls this solidification a synchronic essentialism, or he also calls it a panoptic vision that freezes the Orient. A panoptic vision being, uh, he's drawing from Foucault here, to say that the Orient was placed under a kind of academic surveillance and political surveillance in order to always have the subject of that surveillance, people within the Orient, comply with the rules and with the ideals embraced by the people watching. Now, this, wasn't, this wouldn't necessarily produce real effects for these people. Like, of course, Orientalism uh, on, on, in the whole, on the whole would have effects, so we've already talked about that. But what was more important here in considering the solidification and considering this panoptic vision was the way in which the observers who had power in terms of their observing capacity would always 
draw the same conclusions about these people in terms of their man, uh, latent Orientalism, which would only keep the cycle going. Now, by contrast, he suggests that something like narrative can actually oppose this synchronic essentialism or this panoptic vision because narrative will disturb any preconceived notions about these people because you then begin to listen to them. And what they say isn't always going to jive with what was assumed of them. And the many different interests that would forward and would monetize Orientalism, you know, in its academic study, these people became central figures within the field of Orientalism, where po politicians, imperial agents would be contributing knowledge uh, by their, you know, having been in these places, they would fund or the study of the Orient in order to seal certain economic futures uh, to make lands more accessible for imperial rule, and so on. And so Said believes that despite Europe's claim to have embraced enlightenment by this point, Orientalism reveals its fundamental conservatism, its desire to keep things the same, and just in the way that it continually constructs and reconstructs the Orient in the exact same ways, reveals this desire to have things remain the same. But in the 20th century, all of this began to change. After World War I, the Middle East and many of the countries in it that belonged to that geographical construction began to gain a lot of power, economic, political, religious power that, that was really hadn't been seen before. And this had serious implications for the West and for Western Europe and for North America. So the West would have a harder time selling its superior status or the idea of it being superior. And so its relationship with the Orient began to change after World War I, where the Orient was treated with respect, ostensibly, and with a cultural maturity previously denied to it. So it wasn't going to be infantilized in the same way or treated only as an area to be controlled in very uh, overt ways. Now, with that being said, Orientalism didn't cease to exist. It just assumed different forms. Now, in kind of an offhand comment that I wouldn't normally bring this up because it's just an offhand comment, he suggests that this kind of Orientalism began to emerge at the same time. So after World War I, really kind of after World War II, when the consumer society, so I guess after World War I, if we think about, you know, in the 20s, you know, anyways, uh, a consumer society was starting to emerge in North America and in Western Europe. And he suggests that there's no coincidence in the emergence of this consumer society and this new kind of Orientalism. And that is because people began in their buying power, individual people would buy things from the Orient. They would, they would be interested in the culture there. They would be interested in largely exploiting the people there. Uh, taking stuff, uh, buying stuff from people. And what this did, to some extent, was elevate people's awareness about the Orient away from it being filtered to them by academics, by other figures that would only say bad things about the Orient. Now, in any case, that's just an offhand comment he makes, but I thought it was interesting nevertheless. Now, at the time, there were some thinkers that were emerging 
who really appreciated the Orient and specifically appreciated Islam. So for example, there was a figure by the name of Gibb who thought of himself as an expert of Islam, kind of like how Napoleon viewed himself as an expert of Egyptian culture. So Gibb thought himself to be an expert of Islam to such a point that he thought the entire enterprise was undermined by the religious authority figures. So what he did, and the, like this is so problematic, but what he did was to say that no one in the Middle East truly understands Islam. I understand Islam as uh, this Gib guy believed himself too. And he said that the reason for that is because I identify as Mohammedian, which was it's ridiculous. Like no, uh, no Muslim person is going to identify, as far as I know, as a Mohammedian, Mohammedian. And what that just revealed was his just cultural ignorance and religious ignorance. So all he was really doing was inputting his knowledge about the Bible and Christianity and applying that to Islam as being a demonstration of his superior knowledge. So like with Christianity, it being um, an exaltation of Christ, hence Christianity, he was just applying that same logic to Islam and saying that we can do the same thing. We have Muhammad. Let's say, okay, there's Mohammedanism. Mohammedanism. Sorry. Now that was just one example, and it and he was an English guy. And in France, there was someone by the name of Massignon who made of Mansur el Hala, which I hope to God I somewhat pronounced right, Mansur el al Hala. Uh, made of him a Christ-like figure within Islam. So he was a Sufi and, uh, and a prophet. And Massignon just completely ignored the context and just went in and said, oh yeah, Mansur is the like supreme figure here. We have to exalt him like we do with Christ, which is, a, is totally it's, it's so insensitive. But in any case... Now, what unites these different perspectives between Gibb and Massignon was a desire to correct the imperfections of the Orient. So they approached the Orient as being something quite good in their eyes. And it is something that has been destroyed and has been undermined by the people there. So the association was not the culture with being incorrect, but the people with being incorrect. And all that this culture needed was Europe to come in and save the day. Now, this type of this perspective, one that sought to correct the problems in the Orient. So not not just about control, not just about taking land, but some kind of a, a respect or a desire to make the Orient better set the stage for an emerging Anglo-American Orientalism mostly after World War II. And this happened to really coincide with America's entering the world stage as, as a really a world superpower and of its through its um, own imperial efforts. And so in America, an Arabic person was going to be depicted as the embodiment of incompetence and easy defeat in Said's words. And, you know, there are so many examples of this. Like, if you watch any film 
even today, but like from the 70s, 80s, 90s, that include anybody from any country in Eastern Europe or Western Asia, there are going to be some recurring stereotypes. Like, um, just name a few films like Back to the Future, where the Lebanese people are terrorists, uh, or like True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where the brown people are, of course, terrorists. And those are just two stupid examples. But the point is that so much of American popular culture depicted Arabic people and people from countries, uh, primarily Arabic-speaking countries, depicted them in a certain way, in most cases being terrorists. Now, other economic factors and political factors contributed to this emerging Orientalism with uh, gas and oil becoming a more valuable commodity on the world stage, and this, of course, being an abundant supply in places like Iraq and other countries in the Middle East, quote-unquote Middle East. Now, this also contributed to America's understanding or view of the Orient and Arabic people as being conniving, conspiring, and in a lot of like illustrations having like long noses, uh, making them look as though they are always plotting something, that they're only after money, and so on. And so there are really close similarities between the ways that Arabic people were then being instructed in the later half of the 20th century in America, and the way that Jewish people had been illustrated all throughout Europe for centuries before then. Now, he, he the point that he's making here is somewhat valuable, but in the text, the, he, there is just a gross lack of elaboration on what he means. And so all that we get as readers is the suggestion that the treatment of Jewish people was just transferred from Jewish people onto Muslim people, which is, to put it bluntly, just totally incorrect. The ways that Muslim people are depicted is incredibly different to the ways that Jewish people were. So while there might be some similarities, there are huge differences that are being ignored here. And the way that he bridges the two to say that they are really similar is that both Hebrew and Arabic are Semitic languages. So for some reason, he thinks that to the Orientalist, they were just a they just appeared to be the same thing, kind of the same batch of people and could therefore be oppressed in the same way. And that totally ignores the context, the varying ways that Jewish people were prosecuted all throughout Europe and as well as Muslim people were prosecuted all throughout Europe and, and all over North America for a very, very long time. And the differing ways that they were prosecuted and the differing ways they were oppressed by different regimes. And in this new modern Orientalism, he suggests that Christians and Jewish people have developed an alliance against Arabic people, uh, against Muslim people, which, like, maybe in some extremely reductive way, but that is to totally ignore the way that anti-Semitism, as, as an enterprise against Jewish people, is still alive and well today. It hasn't just disappeared. 
uh, by, you know, on the part of Christians, on the part of however these Orientalists would have uh, identified themselves. And so, like, it just, it's, it's incredibly reductive. But in any case, that's, that's what we have here. So now we turn to the work I just, yeah. Now we turn to the work of Berger. Berger, perhaps, is the pronunciation, who embodies this new Orientalism, this new Anglo-American Orientalism. Now Berger, Berger was at the helm of the transformation of, Orient, of the Orient, or of Orientalism, from being a philological pursuit, and philology from the last episode being, uh, you know, the discussion of, or trying to understand people, like kind of like a science. Now what Berger did was transform this philological understanding of Orientalism or approach to Orientalism into, to make it ready for the social sciences as they would develop in the United States at this time. So whereas the, the philologist would, um, would kind of go into the Orient with some preconceived notions, and these notions would likely have been established in advance they would have left some interpretation up to up to themselves what the social scientist does is instead uh, approach the orient with a prefab as a, as a prefabricated science or with a prefabricated science so they don't go to the orient to try to find its truths they already have their methods their perspectives laid out before and then just apply them to the orient now if you're listening You'll probably say, I don't understand how that's different from the previous episodes or the previous ways that Orientalism would command itself over the Orient. And I'm kind of with you. I'm not totally, it's not totally clear to me how these two things are different. Like maybe uh, the social scientist was able to compartmentalize itself into various different departments that would each have its own scientific approach and apply them instead of it being a more homogenous uh, pursuit of the Orient. In any case, we can only, I can only speculate. Someone else might have a better idea. I'd be very curious if anyone had a better idea. So the American Orientalists, as opposed to other Orientalists, weren't as interested in literature. So their predecessors would actually read texts that emerged from this place called the Orient, and you know, that would allow them at least to view the Orient in itself. Now, the Orient doesn't exist, but at least look at the words that people were saying there. Now, the American Orientalist would prefer instead to just look at facts. They aren't interested in narrative because, as we just mentioned earlier, narrative opens up the possibility to problematize and to challenge panoptic vision or the synchronic essentialism that freezes these people in, in, um, in their culture. So any, any effort to understand Arabic culture and language then comes after scientific intervention and the emergence of corporate interest. So knowledge of culture and language are ways to intensify political and economic hold over the Orient. So there were these large economic enterprises and political uh, influences established, and then the emerging Orientalism was just largely a way to confirm that, to allow these companies, to allow these political interests to continually exert their force over these people and their lands. 
Now, although American Orientalism took stride after World War II, certainly its roots go much further back where the earliest Orientalist societies emerged in in the U.S. in uh, around like the mid-19th century. But this form that assumed itself after, the, after World War II was just like nothing else the world really had ever seen. So he classifies this new Orientalism as embracing four dogmatic positions. And these go as follows. The first is Western superiority. The second is stereotypes, the idea that stereotypes are truer than reality. The third, that the Orient is unchanging. And the fourth, that the Orient is to be feared and, and controlled. So we can't really ignore the way that American imperial power at this point had command all across the globe. And so did other superpowers across the globe gain great power in accordance with uh, globalization. And so it's interesting here, and I'm really drawing upon the work of uh, Jean Baudrillard for anyone who's interested in this idea, but that the idea of the terrorist began to emerge at this time because if you have a global system of control that is organized according to some basic precepts like uh, capitalism, like uh, American exceptionalism or European exceptionalism, any of these ideas, and they are disseminated and communicated all across the globe, then the idea of an enemy is difficult to construct in old in the old kind of old terms like of a rival nation because you know nations don't really stand much of a chance against a global system so it's here that the idea of the terrorist begins to take hold because the terrorist is constructed as kind of like a virus in an otherwise perfect system and they are sporadic they are uh, they are unpredictable and it is in their unpredictability that they are threatening because the global total order views itself as being safe, predictable, calculable, and so on. So it has to imbue its enemy with the opposite traits. And so the terrorist serves a very good, uh, serves a very useful role here in order to provide the idea that there is this actual enemy to this system, which only intensifies uh, that system and the need for its defense. And additionally, like any, any revolution, any people's movement in what is construed as the Orient is just, is just reduced as being like an overflow of sexual desire by these people who are less developed, who are just subject to their emotions and desires. And they, you know, they aren't doing anything because of um, their values or beliefs. They just do things out of impulse. Now, in conclusion, uh, which just comes at the end of the chapter, there isn't a specific uh, chapter for that. He says that he doesn't want to reserve the study of Islam to just Muslims. He says that it is possible to study other cultures without being, uh, without being oppressive like the history of, of Orientalism. So he goes on to present some people, for example, like Clifford Geertz, uh, who, who I've read some of uh, other people like Jacques, uh, Jacques Belk, uh, Maxime Rodinson, who, who've all studied cultures with humility and respect. So there is a way to do that. It's not about just like 
all cultures never communicating with one another or sharing knowledge. But that's exactly it. It has to be about sharing knowledge, not just airdropping yourself in, stealing what you want and running away. It has to be a give and take and communication. And this is also something Franz Fanon argues for. And through that, I think that you can really, you can really increase knowledge by having communication in order to find out how to do things better, uh, how to make people happier and so on. And it's important then to be critical of even these newer perspectives that might be a little, that might appear to be more benevolent, to be more appropriate in their style, because they could so easily regress into a kind of classic Orientalism that just oppresses the other that is under investigation. And yeah, that's pretty much the text. Like the way that this text is organized is quite chaotic and Saeed drops so many different examples like textual examples uh, from orientalists and so on and I couldn't go into detail about all of them because that would take forever uh, so to really get the full picture you have to read the text but I hope that this served as some kind of a an introduction or maybe uh, if you if you're already familiar with the text as a refresher for you uh, or if you learned something new if there's anything I omitted that you think I really should have included or anything I got wrong I'd love to hear about it I read all your comments. I don't have the time to respond to all of them. But in any case, comment away, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of it. And yeah, on that note, catch you next time.